look into his word. Uh, I am Pastor Travis. I am the teaching guy here at Village Bible Church Grace Campus. I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles. Hopefully you have brought it to the book or the Gospel of Mark. We are kicking off our new series today entitled Men at Work, How the Son of Man Paved the Way to God. Now, we're jumping into this book. We, it's been a while since we've got to really jump into a gospel and just tear it apart to see who the hope, the, uh, the reason for the hope that we have, and that's in Christ Jesus. And this gospel, it's the shortest of all the gospels. I'm not sure how much uh, or many of us in this room are familiar with Mark. It's not the, the most uh, attractive of gospels, I guess you'd say. I mean, John presents Jesus as this cosmic Christ with all of these different metaphors. Matthew is written from a very Jewish perspective and presenting Christ as the cosmic king. And, and Luke is looking at Jesus as the, the suffering servant. And, and it's filled with all these biographical details. But, but this gospel, this is the Joe Friday gospel. Joe Friday, remember from Dragnet? Just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. I mean, this is the, a man's gospel. Not a lot of detail, just the facts. And uh, it's, it's one that's just brief. This is where, where men are. Men, we don't, we don't like to give a lot of detail to things like women do. Is that right? I mean, think about it, guys. Just in your house, if you were living by yourself, some of you are by yourself, what do you have? Probably not a lot on the walls, I would imagine. And if you do, it probably doesn't match anything else in the room. Uh, and if you walk into someone else's house, you probably couldn't tell you what the couch color was or whether or not there was a chair. or it, You couldn't say any of that stuff, but you would definitely know if there was a TV and if the refrigerator was full. I, I, I would venture that because we have men, we're not known for all these details, uh, but women are. But this gospel is just the facts. It's, it's, it's uh, 16 chapters long, so it's the shortest of all the gospels. Matthew has 28. John has 21, Luke has 24, and this gospel only has 678 verses. And it's, uh, it's the fastest moving out of all the gospels. It, it's exemplified by Mark's use of the word immediately, which occurs 40, approximately 40 times in this brief little book. Now, I've looked at this brief book, and I've been examining it, I've been studying it, I've been praying over it, and I've been saying, Lord, what do you want to teach us? What do you want to teach me? What do you want to teach us through this this, this uh, gospel. And as I studied, I, I found a, a, some very intriguing details about this. Some have understood or felt that this is the very first out of all the four gospels. Some believe, some scholars believe that Matthew and Luke, uh, which with, with Mark, make up what's called the synoptic gospels, meaning that they all come from a very similar perspective. John has a completely different perspective than Matthew, Mark, or Luke. But Mark is the first. And some scholars believe that even Matthew and Luke, they even used parts of Mark in compiling their gospel accounts. That was kind of the standard that was, that was left out for um, them. So it's this, this gospel that it's the first of its kind. I mean, today we, we have the luxury. We can go to like a Barnes & Noble. We can find any type of biography. You think of different biographies that are out today, different politicians. I mean, you can get a biography or several different biographies on some of our, our uh, politicians in the, the modern era. But back in during Jesus' day, there wasn't anything like that. I mean, we have histories, history books like by guys with the name of like Herodotus or Thucydides and these kind of names that you remember hearing once when you were in high school history class, perhaps, and you probably can't pronounce their name. 
uh, but it's the answer to some, you know, trivia question on Jeopardy. <laughs> but this book, Mark came out bringing out, in essence, it ushered in or was the precursor to the modern biography. It was the first of its kind in the ancient world. I mean, to, to write this orderly account that would lay out the details of one's life. And Mark is different than, uh, different than any other book that appears within history initially. Ushering in this radical new shift, a radical new understanding, a radical uh, truth that Jesus Christ came into the world. Now, we, we start off this book in Mark chapter 1, and what I hope to do today is give us an overview and set the trajectory for what we're going to be studying for the next several weeks, not only in here, but in small groups, which uh, I'm thankful that Pastor Andrew gave a plug for our small groups. If you haven't got into a small group yet, we'd really encourage you to, because we practice here, we, we do a thing called sermon-based small groups, where in the small groups, you actually study the passage the week before I preach on it. So it gives you a chance to, to really dig into it for yourself and really imprint this truth on, your, on our hearts, not only as individuals, but as a church, that we can learn what God has for us together as we go through this. But we're looking at this radical book. Now, I looked up the word radical, and the definition that I found was this. Uh, there's, there's actually a few that I didn't realize, but the one that I picked is an adjective, especially of change or action, relating to or affecting the fundamental nature of something far-reaching or thorough. And this book as we're going to learn in the next several weeks and months, is a radical book. It has the potential to change our lives. It can change our lives not only as individuals, but as a church. Whether you are investigating the claims of Christ or whether or not you've been in Christ for 50 years, God's truth is timeless. And it can change every single person in this room, me included. I pray for revival in my own heart that I might walk closer with Jesus through this small but radical book. I would ask you to turn with me, if you haven't already, to the book of Mark chapter 1 as we delve into and we look into these first eight verses as we give, an, again, an overview of the next several months. But please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Mark chapter 1. John Mark, by the Holy Spirit, writes, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come into your presence today knowing uh, that you are a radical God and that the faith that we've been called to is radical. Lord, how often we have not lived radically. 
how often we have just given in to cultural conformity. Lord, I pray today if there's someone here that is investigating the claims of who you are, I pray that by your spirit you imprint the truth, uh, the truth of this word upon their hearts today, that they might have and know you, the one true Savior of the world, that they might have forgiveness of sins and experience eternal life in you. And for those of us, Lord, who have been in Christ for a long time, who might be going through a time of darkness or despair or might be troubled or going through a trial, Lord, I pray that you speak to our hearts through this radical book that you have given us for our benefit, that we might know who you are and what it means to walk closer with you. Be in our time today and glorify your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Books have power. I think we all know that, for good or for bad, which is why some people in time have burned books because of its content. I mean, you can think about it. There's been uh, always something in the headlines about a book that's been banned at a certain school because of a certain content or books that have, have led revolutions and, and books that people have laid out their agenda. I think of uh, Hitler's book, Mein Kampf, where his mind struggle, where he wrote it, and it, it set the trajectory of actually how, what he was going to do in Germany. Or books, again, that have massive um, or horrendous um, reactions to, or when people put them into place, like the Communist Manifesto by Karl Marx. There's, there's other books that have caused such great movements, or actually horrid movements in history. But this book, the book that we're looking at, I mean, the book of the Bible specifically, the book of Bible, the Bible generally, but the book of Marx specifically, I mean, it, it is radical in its implementation. As I mentioned before, the precursor of the biography. I mean, this book in history was definitely radical and edgy because of it is record of Jesus of Nazareth. The hinge upon which history turns. It was radical to Romans because John Mark was writing in the 50s. Some think it was in the, the 60s. Um, and he uh, was writing out of Rome. And it was just radical because of what you had going on at the time. I mean, you had the Caesars reigning. And I don't know if you've ever read much about the Caesars. I, I wasn't very familiar with them until I started really looking into this passage and a few others. But these guys were messed up guys. And these guys were, I mean, like just the cult of celebrity times two. It was unbelievable. These guys would have birthdays and they would declare them to be holidays and they'd make people even bow down and worship him and offer incense. And, and that's why this gospel, it's really interesting that it starts off, it's different than Matthew and Luke. Matthew and Luke start off with what? Who knows? Genealogy, Matthew does, Luke does too, but it starts off with, the, I mean, specifically, I mean, the genealogy is in, re, in reference to the birth of Christ. Mark doesn't mention a thing about it. Do you think about that? Mark doesn't, doesn't address it at all. The reason is, is because, and I believe, not only is he just doing the facts and focusing on the public ministry of Jesus for the three-year period of time that he is really ministering, but it's, he's doing it because he's, he doesn't want the, he's, he's talking to the Romans, and the Romans were already looking at the Caesars as gods and their births and setting it apart, and he says, no, 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 this is different. This is not only is Jesus different from everybody else, but he's the son of God. I mean, different pharaohs would claim to be God incarnate sometimes. They would, they would be worshipped as God, but they're setting Jesus on a completely different trajectory. It's not all this big fanciful myth. I mean, he's rooting Jesus in history and focusing just on him. 
It was radical to Romans, and it was radical to Jews. And, and it's the beginning of what everything else in the Old Testament had led to. Henrietta C. Mears, who is a, a lay Bible teacher in Hollywood, California, in the mid-20th century, said this. She said uh, about the Bible as a whole, but Mark is, is kind of seen uh, uh, just as a side. She says, the Old Testament is an account of a nation, the Hebrew nation. The New Testament is an account of, the, of man or the son of man. The nation was founded and, founded and nurtured of God in order to bring the man into the world, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, which is God's promise to Abraham. And God himself became a man so that we might know what to think of when we think of God, John 1, 14 and John 14, 9. His appearance on the earth is the central event in all history. The Old Testament sets the stage for it, and the New Testament describes it. And this is the first description of that. This man and the entire Jewish race was to bring about this man. This man is greater than any other man within history. And that's what Mark sets from the beginning, the beginning of the gospel, the good news. That's the word there, euangelion. It's the good news, the best news that you could possibly imagine. I mean, have you ever had good news in your life? Or what it's like to have bad news when the phone rings and it's, it's the hospital? Or, I mean, I, I had that last week. I got a phone call from my wife. She said, we're rushing our, uh, Elijah, my son, uh, 22-month-old son, said, we're rushing him to the emergency room right now. That's not the call you want to receive. He had uh, bronchiolitis and his, he was only getting 60% oxygen. He's fine. Everything ended up being okay. But that's just the, the call you don't want to receive. That's bad news. Then you, there's that other call where you see this good news, like so-and-so's getting married. Or the news, like when my wife told me the first time, she goes, by the way, honey, I'm pregnant. <laughs> At the time, it was like, that's good news, right? <laughs> I felt like she, someone took a purse and slapped it across my face. I was excited, but I was surprised. But it was great news. I was so excited. Now, this is the good, the best news that we can ever possibly have, that God saw us in our state. And loved us so much that he would send his son to be there for us. So that's the best news. And as we get into this radical book, we're going to see this man who transformed history and who has the power to transform our lives. Now, as we kick off this series, we need to get our bearings to set the stage a little bit. First says, who wrote Mark? We kind of take that for granted. Has a guy's name on it. We think the guy wrote it. Well, he did. But he, it's interesting, Mark wasn't an apostle, although he was friends with the apostles. He was probably a young man during that period of time. And, but he has some intimate details of things. I mean, he does give a, a little bit of detail, things that no other gospel writer does. Like when Jesus goes to sleep in the boat, that he lays his head down on a pillow. None of the other gospels mention that. Or when the crowd sat down, they sat on green grass. So he has intimate knowledge. So how do, the question is, is, how does he have intimate knowledge? Now, most scholars believe, and church history attain, um, attributes this, guys by the name of Eusebius, who wrote the actually first church history of Caesarea. Uh, he's recording another guy during that period of time, the early church by the name of Papias, who they all testified that John Mark got his details from Peter. From Peter. That Peter had given the details to Mark. They were working Hand in hand. So these guys, it, 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 it's, it seems that's what it really appears and leads to. And remember, he's writing from Rome in the mid to late 50s, although some see it in the 60s. And the reason is, is that this argument in favor of the mid to late 50s it was, is that the book of Acts ends with Paul in prison. 
in the year AD 62, leading many scholars to believe that Acts was written around that time. And others suggest that Acts does not end at the point it was written because the key point in Acts is that the gospel has made it to Rome. In other words, he's writing about Acts, but at the same time, Mark is writing at this period of time right in there that he was familiar and all these details were still in place. And while Matthew is writing to a predominantly Jewish audience, the other Gospels have Gentiles much more in focus. In early church history, reports that many Gentile Christians, non-Jews, were frequently mentioned as the recipients of this Gospel. So we've got him as the author, got him written at the, the period of time that he's writing, and we, we got him writing from Rome. But as we explore this book, we're going to look and see, first of all, this man who is the author, we're going to see a man that is radically flawed. Radically flawed. Flawed. I want you to write down. That's the first point in your notes. I mean, how many, how many of us in this room feel like we have flaws? I know I do. Ask my wife. We all have flaws. We all know what it's like to be a failure. I know what it's like to be a failure. I've been a failure many, too many times in my life to count. And John Mark was not only just radically flawed, but he was a, a big-time failure. Now, we can see this through his bio. His bio. Now, here's something that we may not know uh, about Mark. I, I had kind of heard about it over the years, but I really didn't get it nailed down until really studying this passage. But we see this in Mark chapter 14, verse 51 and 52. See, after Jesus had been captured in the Garden of Gethsemane and was being taken off to be tried, we read this. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Now, that might be strange because this incident is only recorded in Mark's gospel. It's not recorded in Matthew. It's not recorded in Luke. And it's definitely not in John's. Leading many commentators to think that Mark himself, the author of this gospel, was this young man. And that out of modesty, he did not include his own name. So we can see that he's flawed from that, uh, because he fled from Jesus. During Jesus' biggest time of need, he fled from Jesus. But that's not all there is. I mean, there are, there are, all the disciples fled. I mean, none of them, I don't think, besides Mark, fled naked. <laughs> I mean, that guy's running naked from Jesus. And, I, 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 and he puts that in there. I mean, he understood failure. And that's why I think Peter and Mark work so closely, because they both understood what it meant to fail. I mean, Peter had denied the Lord. Not, I mean, everybody else deserted him. He said, I, after everybody else does, I won't. And he denied the Lord, and so did John Mark. I mean, he didn't deny the Lord. He just fled. He ran away. But see, Peter experienced Jesus' restoration. You see that in the book of John, chapter 21. But John Mark, I mean, he messed up even later. His ministry was even more, or was even messier. See, John Mark was a cousin of Barnabas, according to Colossians 4.10, who accompanied Paul. This is later on, after Christ had risen and the early churches is, is, is going on. Uh, he accompanied Paul and Barnabas on Paul's first missionary journey, according to Acts 12 and Acts 13. But he deserted them along the way in Perga and returned to Jerusalem in Acts 13.13. 13. So when Barnabas wanted Paul to take John Mark on the second missionary journey, Paul refused. The friction that resulted between Paul and Barnabas led to their separation. So not only did he flee from Jesus, but he forsook his ministry. 
John Mark screwed up. He dropped out. He fumbled. He flamed out. He quit. He backslidden. He failed. He left his post. You know, I think we all know failure. I know I do. I think everyone in this room can testify to a time when you failed, not just in life, but I mean, especially in your pursuit of Christ. I know that there are times when I should have witnessed to someone and I didn't. I know there are times when I spent my money in a way that I shouldn't have. I know there are times when I, when I failed to give a word of encouragement or I said something dumb or I said something stupid or I forgot something or I, I let my flesh grab in. Or I know there are times when there, there was a missionary at the door and out of fear I just hid when they knocked. I know that there are times when I was indulging in sin and didn't want to speak to anyone about Christ. I've been there. I think we've all been there. We know what it's like to, to fail, to mess up, to feel like God doesn't want us anymore, to feel like we've gone so far God doesn't want to use us, that we're struggling with the same sin over and over and over and over again. And we see other people that seem to be faithful just going along, and, and it just drives us nuts because we can't be like that, struggling with our own flesh. I think we all have been there. We know what it's like to fail. We are all, in a way, a little bit like John Mark. I mean, the Bible is good news for failures, though. God doesn't leave us where we are. Whenever we sin, screw up, short circuit, strike, strike out, or, or simply are, are, are wallowing in shame, His grace is sufficient. And His Spirit supplies what we need when we need it, and He even takes away our shame. That's exactly what God did in John Mark's life. John Mark didn't stay in that state for long because God transformed him and did a work within him and he stepped back up to the plate to swing again. He became strong, grew in his maturity, and in time proved himself even to the Apostle Paul. See, when Paul wrote uh, to the Col uh, Colossians, he instructed that if John Mark came, they were to welcome him. Colossians 4.10. Paul even listed Mark as a fellow worker in, Philippi in Philemon 20, um, verse 24. And later, Paul even told Timothy to go get Mark and bring him with you, for he's very useful to me in ministry. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. See, John Mark's restoration to useful ministry may have been in part due to the ministry of Peter. That's why Peter came alongside him. Peter knew what it meant to mess up. I mean, think about the people when after you've messed up and sinned, the people that are most encouraging to you are people that you know have been there before, that have been through it, that have walked a mile in your shoes, that can speak to the testimony of it, and they can come alongside. Many of you have been that to others. You, you that are older and more mature within the faith, you have made your, your mistakes. I know I've made mine. And then you come alongside some of us that are, are younger, and, and you help us. In our walk, because you say, I've been there, I've messed up, I've blown it. That's such an encouragement to know that we can encourage one another. And, and Peter, Peter's close relationship with Mark is evident from his description of, the, of him as Mark. As he writes in 1 Peter 5.13, Mark, my son. That's the relationship they have. He was a great spiritual mentor. Because Peter, of course, was no stranger to failure himself. And his influence on the younger man was no doubt instrumental in helping him out of the instability of his youth and into the strength and maturity he would need for the work to which God had called him. See, there's much to the book of Mark. And we've looked into Mark the man. Now let's look at the, his book and some of its characteristics first. Let's turn to the, to the book itself. The book itself. First thing we see, and I mentioned before, it's fast-paced. It's constantly moving. 
It's the shortest of the four. As I mentioned before, there's only 678 verses as, a, you know, as opposed to the other Gospels, which have considerably more. And it's the fastest moving of the Gospels, which is exemplified by his use of the word immediately, which he uses approximately 40 times. And, and uh, Mark tends to include some vivid description at times, and he prefers, though, Greek verbs that portray an action in process. See, he often records people's responses to what Jesus did and said. And like all storytellers, Mark selected his material by two criteria. He chose events that were typical or representative in the life of Jesus, such as miracles of healing and the telling of parables, and unique, once-only events, especially those connected with the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. I mean, Peter was there, eyewitness account. Now, some, as I mentioned before, call the gospel of Mark a man's gospel because it just focuses on the facts. This is the dragnet part, just the facts, man, just the facts. I mean, he just gives the facts. He does give some vivid description in some areas, but the other Gospels don't have. But overall, it's just the meat and potatoes, nothing extra, nothing frou-frou. Consider for a moment that both Matthew and Luke spend considerable time, as I mentioned before, on the birth of Christ. But Mark just jumps in with the ministry of John the Baptist. Now, we've addressed this, the author of the book, and, and I'd like to turn our attention to a specific passage. I'd like us to look at the messenger who is radically focused. We've looked at the man, we've seen his bio, we've seen where Mark was messed up, that he was a flawed guy like us. But we see here a messenger who is radically focused. Now, look at John the Baptist here. Mark starts off with a quote from Isaiah the prophet. He says, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Now, we're looking at John the Baptist, and we can see that he was radically focused through, first of all, his mandate. I mean, he's, he's, he knew his purpose. I was reading today in, in my devotional time the account of uh, the book of Luke. You've got to remember that John the Baptist and Jesus were, were relatives. Some believe they were cousins, about six months apart. But they were raised in different geographical locations. So John is preparing the way for Jesus, and he is, uh, he's the result of prophecy himself. His father, Zacharias, uh, Zachariah and his mother Elizabeth, she was older, had been barren, couldn't have children, but God had prophesied and told them that they were going to have a son. His name would be John. He wasn't to, to drink at all anything that came from the vine, but he would be a prophet who would make straight the pathway of the Lord. So from his birth, he knew his mandate, and his purpose was to lay out the ground for Jesus to come. I mean, he is radically laying that foundation and then get out of the way. As he testified in the book of John, after seeing Jesus, in John chapter 3, verse 30, he says this, He must increase, but I must decrease. I mean, how many of us can say that about Jesus in our lives? How many of us, we want to, it to be Jesus and me? And as Jesus gets bigger, we want to get bigger. I know that's been some of my things in my own life that I've had to work through. I want, though, Jesus to be bigger and me to become less. He must increase in my life. I must decrease. Because the more that Jesus increases in my life, or in our lives as a whole, the more that Jesus is seen 
as we serve sacrificially, as we give up ourselves, as we, we, we begin to become more satisfied in Him. When Jesus gets bigger in our life, when we become less, we become to delight in Him more. And then God is more glorified in us, the mo- as, as John Piper has laid out, when we are most satisfied in Him as individuals and as a church. And then when other people come in that may not believe, but they, they sense the presence of God because we are so selfless. But we have been more selfish. We are products of our culture. We have to ask God to transform us, myself included. I mean, I I put myself at the front of the line. We need to be more selfless and be like John the Baptist and say, our our job is to point other people to Jesus, to to point other people to take him to him. We don't have the, the, in essence, we can't give people eternal life, but we can direct them to the one who can. We can't solve all of their problems, but we can take them to the one who can. We can't give them hope in and of ourselves, but we can take them to to the person who can. And John was testifying to the greatness of who Jesus is. I must decrease. He must increase. I want Jesus to be bigger than all of us, and he is. But I want us to, to depend on that. We can all become more sacrificial in giving, serving, and loving. We can also see that John was radical not only by his mandate, by his mannerisms, his fashion and food. I mean, he was a pretty crazy guy. Look at verse 6. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Wow. How would you like uh, one of uh, the the elders of, of Village Bible Church Grace Campus to wear that every week? And instead of having the food in the back, we're just going to give you locusts and wild honey. How would that be? Would you like that? And just walking around the leather belt, I mean, seriously, you'd be having us checked into Provena Mercy before the service was over. (laughs) But here's a radical guy. Some believe that John was an Essene, which was a movement of of people that were very strict in their dietary laws, and, and they lived out in the wilderness, just kind of eking out existence. Some believe that John was a part of that movement and which was uh, the dress was very common of that uh, but no matter how we look at it I mean he is he's got radical mannerisms I mean and each text mentions that he is eating locusts and wild honey and his dress he's a radical guy he was also radical in his methods he's out in the wilderness and he's saying to people, you got to get right with God. You can almost picture a wild-eyed, long-haired John yelling in the wilderness, and people were coming out to him, which is pretty phenomenal because the wilderness was not a place where Jews wanted to go because it was the place that was destitute. It was the place with, without water, without food, without companionship. It was separated from the entire community, and yet they're going out to this guy. They're going out to, to be baptized by him as he's proclaiming a baptism of repentance. Now, it's interesting that baptism was practiced in the ancient world by other different groups. I was surprised when I was in Egypt and I was looking at different hieroglyphics and I'm looking at my guide and I'm like, I'm I'm looking at a picture and I said, that looks strange to me. It looks like he's being baptized. And he says, they are, they practice baptism. It was a different kind of baptism. That's why John, it sets John's baptism apart. It's different in that he's proclaiming the baptism for repentance of sins and people are going out. Roman soldiers or even going out. I mean, this guy was just radical in his methods. He was just out there proclaiming and preaching loudly and yelling. He wasn't in a, a nice, beautiful church. I mean, even George Whitfield, who was an evangelist in the uh, 18th century, 
he uh, was uh, one of the, uh, he was great friends with John Wesley, an amazing man of God, great revivalist. Um, and uh, he was different in that he would preach with robes at the time, and they'd have those white hair pieces. And instead of preaching behind this elevated pulpit that they have, I don't know if you've ever seen that in other churches, you have to walk up to the pulpit where it's literally looking down on everyone. Uh, it's, it's, and it, it, instead of doing that, he went outside and just preached, which was radical at the time, very similar to John the Baptist, and just proclaiming the, the message of who Jesus Christ is. And today, we think of radical people like that. I mean, think about someone, if you would hear that on the news, some guy standing out in the middle of, the, of a field outside of Hinckley, just proclaiming Christ and preaching. What would you do? What would you think? What would we think? I know what I would think. What is going on? Who's that guy? He had radical methods, and he had a radical message. He had a radical message. He was calling for people to come to repentance. He was outspoken in the face of hostility. He didn't spare feelings, and he refused to be politically correct or tolerant of sin. And it was his zeal that got him into trouble with the ruling authorities. Ended up getting him killed because he calls out to the, the, uh, the leader of the time and said that his marriage was uh, illegal and wrong. And he ends up losing his head because of it. I mean, this was one radical guy. And he doesn't care who you are. He's calling everybody to repentance. He doesn't care how smart they are, how religious they are, where they're from. He doesn't care. He just says, repent. Repent. That's how we are to be. To be bold like John. Our world today is, is at war with us, though. They don't want us to be bold. I mean, think about it. What do they say when you're at your workplace? You try to proclaim Christ. You know, we, we underappreciate what you believe, but if you continue this up, we're going to have to fire you and let you go. And that's tough. It's being radical. But God has called us to be radical in the face of hostility, to be radical in our workplaces, to be radical with our families, to be radical with our friends, to be unequivocal in God's calling people to repentance. That's, not, that's, a, that's a hard message for this world to follow. I know many of you are like me, you've, you've tried to get into, uh, or into conversations with people and, and you start speaking the name of Christ and, they, and it's like they have no clue what you're talking about. I, I remember I was invited to uh, a neighbor of mine had a, a party last week that I was invited to. He's a Jewish guy, He's a, he was a professor uh, for a period of time and, and I, I, I go to this uh, little, it's a Sukkot festival which is the, the Feast of Tabern, uh, uh, not ta yeah, Tabernacles. And they, he actually constructed a tent like a, in his backyard and invited all the neighbors around. And uh, I had no idea that um, in my little community where I live that there's kind of the who's who of Aurora around me, people that own like different areas and things like that. And I felt very intimidated. And all these people have more degrees than, uh, you know, than the heat in this room and uh, very, just very intelligent people and they're talking very educatedly and, and I'm sitting there going, how do I try to turn this to Christ? How do I? And I'm trying to speak about Christ. And the more I speak to them, the more they're looking at me like I'm the strangest guy they have ever seen in their lives. And they're just kind of reciting all of this garbage. And I'm sitting there going, Lord, how do I? How do, and I, I don't want to look like an idiot. Have you ever been in that? You don't want to sound dumb. I don't want to sound dumb. But I realize the more that I'm sitting there, what I'm going to say is going to sound crazy to them. But that's what I'm called to do. And I'm hoping to continue that relationship. You can pray for me if you think about it, because I'm going to be getting into a conversation with him this next week. And I, I think, I, and I'm trying to, how do I communicate this message? I want to be a little bit like John the Baptist, but I'm not. I'm more like John Mark in that I'm running naked away. 
But we are to be bold in proclaiming Christ at our workplaces, across the cubicle, across the aisle, in the classroom, as we're on the phone, as we're, we're fixing someone's electricity, as we're maybe unclogging someone's toilet or fixing someone's car, we're still all these times to be testified to the greatness of who Jesus is. And we can do so. We can be like John the Baptist. And that we can stand unequivocally for the truth of who Jesus Christ is as individuals and as a church. So John, he had a radical message. You know, we have a radical message. We're to call people to repentance. But we have to make sure that our life is also reflecting it. We all have to ask ourselves, is our life reflecting the truth that we're espousing? See, we are to love the lost, but it doesn't mean overlooking sin. It means unapologetically proclaiming Christ to our family and our friends. It means speaking the name of Jesus and that what He has done for sinners at your workplace, across the aisle, across the cubicle, wherever we are. We don't have to dress like John the Baptist or adopt his diet for people to think we're radical. We must simply live according to what the Bible says about us, and that will be radical enough. See, we, sometimes a lot of churches today want to make the gospel more palpable for people. No, we're not to do that. We're to stand firm upon the word of God and proclaiming Christ's truth to this lost, dying, and sinful world unapologetically. Sometimes churches want to be original and they want to do something completely new. Well, the gospel's 2,000 years old. If you're, it's done pretty well without us introducing a lot of the new stuff with it. We don't need to change the message. It's timeless. Jesus is the same. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We are simply to proclaim that truth, to get in line with those saints that have gone before us who have sought to proclaim the truth of who Jesus Christ is. We don't need to be original. We just need to speak the truth. C.S. Lewis once said this. He said, even in literature and art, no man who bothers about originality will ever be original. Whereas, if you simply try to tell the truth without caring two pence how often it has been told before, you will, nine times out of ten, become original without ever having noticed it. Because the, the truth of Christ, that if you were living it in this world, people will see your life and your light, and that will be original to them because everybody else is doing something completely different. They're all following the broad pathway of destruction and the philosophy of the world that when you stand out, when we stand out, then other people take notice of our, of our walks, our lives, to see who Jesus is. See, God has entrusted us with the task of making disciples. We don't need to be worry about being original. If we tell the truth, we'll become original and thus be radical. That's the last thing that we can draw from our passage for today. Through the first few verses of Mark, we can see a ministry that is radically faithful. That's what Mark reminds us of. See, Mark reminds us that our faith is founded on and founded in Christ. It's all about Him. That's why the beginning of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, I mean, it's different than anything else that's ever been said. I mean, this is God incarnate. This is the, the God who entered into creation for our benefit to save us because He loves us. That's what we are to proclaim. It's founded on and founded in Jesus Christ. Nothing else. We're not to call people just to, to conformity. 
We're not to call them just to adopt a Christian subculture. We're not a calling to them to listen to, just, I mean, to Christian radio. We're not calling them to read Christian books. We're calling them to a life transformation through the person of Jesus Christ. That's what we're calling people to do, to be repentant, to understand that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that He has come to die on their behalf, to forgive their sin, to take the wrath of God upon Himself for them, and He is coming back to judge the quick and the dead, that all men and women will be held to an account. I will be held to an account. You will be held to an account. We as a church will be held to give an account for what we have done with Jesus Christ. But our faith, we can never remember that our hope is in Christ, crucified, died, and resurrected. We can never get away from that fact. Our faith is founded on and founded, found in Christ. He's the only answer for failures, the fearful and the flawed. As Paul wrote about our faith, it's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The second thing we can learn from this passage is that even failures can do fantastic things for God. Isn't that like a cold drink on a summer day or a hot drink on a cold day? It's refreshing to the soul. I know that gives me hope that God's just not going to leave me where I was, where I've been, or when I've messed up, when I've failed, when I've, when I've not done what he wanted me to do, when I gave in to sin. But God still has a purpose for me and for us. That's one of the greatest things in the world. Isn't that great to know that God can use you, can use us? Even after everything that we have done in our lives, I mean, think about the worst sins that you've done. Think about the worst situations in which our sins have placed us. And yet God is in the midst of that, calling us to himself, offering not only to forgive us, to bestow his grace upon us, to set us on our trajectory where we can have a purpose for him. Praise God for that. I'm so grateful for that opportunity. Even failures can do fantastic things for God. I mean, this book frees failures to do great things. God allowed him to be known for all of the ages because he was given the opportunity to write it. I wonder what was said to him. If he, ever, if he ever told anybody specifically that after he had fled from Jesus and he was naked and he was just experiencing, I'm sure, this tumultuous grief of sh and, and shame in his life, I wonder if someone ever came alongside him and ever said to him, by the way, God's going to use you to write a book that's going to go all over the world and impact people for ages. I don't know if he ever knew that. I doubt that. But it's tremendous to know that God uses failures to do fantastic things for him. And our third lesson we can see is that our spiritual fervor must be focused on the right things. Focuses on the right things. See, both John Mark and John the Baptist show us our job is to tell others about Jesus. <laughs> we can focus on politics, helping or serving people, but we must put all of our attention and focus to calling people to respond and repent to the good news of what God has done and is doing in Christ Jesus. We're not even to be presenting the, a, a, a certain politician as the hope for people. I mean, so many times Christians capitulate that and they equate politics for being faithful to Jesus. But Jesus is not in the White House, nor will he ever be. 
mean, yes, we're to be involved and to be, to be showing the truth of who Christ is and, and voting according to what the Word of God says, to be defending life, but we never must mistake politics for the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only Savior of the world. That's who to represent to people. It's simply saying to others, just like they, they, to Jesus, or other people said to Jesus, to, about Jesus, they said, come and see him. Come and see him and what he's done for me. That's what partly evangelism is. Come and see. Come and see. That's all we invite other people to do. Come and see what Jesus has done for you. Come and see the one who saved me. Come and see the one who gave me hope and transformed my life and, and put us in this, in this to, uh, to fulfill his purpose. Come and see him. And then after they come and see him and they are transformed themselves, then what are they to do? What are we to do? To go and tell. That's evangelism, quite simply. Come and see, now go and tell. Come and see, now go and tell. Come and see, now go and tell. And make disciples of all nations. We're to call people to radical faith in Christ Jesus. No matter where we've been, no matter what we've done, no matter how much we've messed up, no matter uh, what we've been through in life, no matter what's happening to us now, we're still to be radical in the midst of our situation. And the question we have to ask ourselves is this. Is our faith radical? Can others look at our lives and say we are living radically in our world today? What about those with whom we work? Can they see Christ evident in your life, in our lives? What about those in our family? Can people see our faith and our hope in Christ as we interact with them? What about with our friends? Can people see the hope of Christ and our radical faith in the midst of that? In our business dealings, in our spending habits, in our entertainment choices? Is Christ evident and is our faith radical to be seen in the middle of all that? This book is radical. Our faith is radical. And it's even more radical that God came into the world to call us to himself. Now, as I ask ourselves, is our faith radical? Notice I didn't say weird. All too often, some Christians think that weird is radical. But it's not. We must be radical in our devotion, our determination, and our dedication. But all too often, we're, we think weird is being right. No. It's being radical in our devotion. And other people notice that. Are we focused on the right things as individuals? Or are we focused on the right things as a church? As we go through this series, I hope it might be a challenge for all of us to look at our lives as individuals and as a church and say, and ask ourselves the question, am I radical for Jesus? I mean, the Son of Man came to pave the way to God, to give me this radical book, to, to help me to have a radical life and to, to be a participant in radically calling others to repentance and a saving relationship with Jesus Christ and to live my life in the same manner that other people might see Jesus in me. Are we radical? And if not, why aren't we? What's creeping in to keeping us from that? What, what is, is, is uh, trying to smother our faith and trying to dim our light in the world? And Whatever we see it is, we must bring it to Christ. We must confess our sins. We must lay it before him and then say, God, help make us radical. Help us to, to give the facts. We don't have to dump theological dump trucks on people when we're witnessing to them. We just have to tell them who Jesus Christ is and say, come and see. And they'll allow Jesus to transform them. I look at, at evangelism as a big way as this, is just taking someone, come and see, and then taking them to the cross. 
Not letting anything impede their way. Just let them see Jesus and let Jesus do the transformation. I'm not called to transform them. You're not called to transform them. As a church, we're not called to transform. That's God's job. But we are to beseech God in prayer and, and yielding our lives to Him so that He can use us to bring them very acutely and aware of what, Jesus, what God has done in Jesus Christ on the cross for us. Let's close our, our message time in a word of prayer. Our Father, I am so aware of my failure as a person, as a pastor. And Lord, I, I know that there are many in this room that could say the same. Lord, I, I, we know how badly we've messed up. We know how worldly we can be. We know how much of failures we have been or even are right now. But Lord, we also know that there's grace and that you allowed John Mark to, to write this radical book even though he was a failure. And Lord, you, you used individuals that were pretty radical in their message and everything that they did would help us to be radical. Not to draw attention to ourselves, but to draw attention to you, to make a, a straight path for other people to, to walk to see Jesus. Lord, may we not get in the way. All too often, we, our flesh gets in the way, our pride, and we try to assert our own agendas and try to do what, uh, what, we, what we prefer rather than what is right. So Lord, help us to be ever mindful of our responsibility. And Lord, help us to be confident, Lord, knowing that your, your grace is sufficient, that you forgive us of our sins when we come to you in repentance and faith with contrite hearts. And Lord, then you take us and transform us. You wash us clean by your grace of, uh, of our shame. And Lord, you help us to continue on with you. Lord, I think of how John Mark proved himself time and time again after he had failed and he had fleed. Lord, he, you used him. You established him to, to write this message, to go on to such great and fruitful ministry, letting his walk speak more than his talk. Lord, help us to be like that. Help us to be, to be champions of righteousness, to ro boldly proclaim the truth of who you are. And everywhere we go, Lord, no matter what the consequences may be, Lord, whether it's at our school, whether it's with our, our classmates, whether it's with our friends, whether it's at the job that we're working at, the construction site, or, or in the office, or maybe it's in our home or with our family, maybe it's on the playground, Lord, wherever it may be, may we speak boldly, and may we be radical, and may we be found faithful as individuals and as a church to the task that you have entrusted us. And Lord, may the message of this book, as we study it together in church and in small groups, may it, uh, may it be a, a tsunami of transformation in our lives. May you wipe the slate clean, Lord, if there's sins, if there's, if there's unbelief, if there's just situations in which we have found ourselves because of, of sinful choices, Lord, please, Show us your grace, show us your mercy, and then use us to proclaim and extend the hope of the Savior of the world to all with whom we come into encounter with. And we ask your blessing on us as, as a church and as we go our separate ways and as we study this passage together. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to getting to know Christ again through the study of the Gospel of Mark. And uh, as we come to know who Christ is, then it will.